Well, I guess I uh, should start by introducing myself. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Jordan. That's a story in and of itself, having that name. Um, I graduated from Houghton in 1999 and went to seminary. And from 2002 through 2009, I was the pastor of a Baptist church about halfway between Philadelphia and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It was kind of fun because the suburbs were just beginning to thin out and the Amish were just beginning to sort of come in there. So you had these giant box stores with horses and buggies parked outside at hitching posts. So that was kind of the the place that we were. Uh, In the summer of 2009, last summer, my wife Jill and I and our kids Grace and Jack moved back to Houghton. Uh, Jill teaches math full-time at the college. And I've been teaching religion courses and adjunct. Um, My history with Houghton goes back further than my time as a student. Um, I grew up uh, as the grandson of Kay and Ken Lindley, for you longtime Houghton people. Um, So I experienced Houghton as a student, but before that, just coming to Houghton. And Easter was usually our holiday with Grandma and Grandpa up here, I suppose, because they had a little time off around then. So uh, I was here many, many Easter Sundays as a young boy. Um, And I I have to, I guess, also say just how grateful I am to be speaking here. Um, So many good memories uh, from my early life or from from this place. Um, Just imagining some of you who were there then singing, Christ the Lord is risen today at Easter time, and hearing young Reverend J. Michael Walters preaching. And I always felt a kinship with him because I'm J. Michael as well. I'm J. Michael Jordan. And so even at a young age, I just love to come and listen to him and just thought of myself differently when I would hear him preach. I was very thankful for that. Uh, then when I was a student, there was another young pastor, Reverend Wes Oden. And uh, Wes really shaped my perception of what preaching should be. Uh, I just really learned a lot about preaching from Wes. And so I'm very, very grateful to be here. It just I was going to say it's awesome to be here, but not lowercase a awesome. Just amazing that I'm getting to stand here in this place that has just been such a, a wonderful place for me. Um, I want us to focus a little bit on the New Year holiday today, and to help us do that, there's just one sentence from the reading that I particularly want to pick out. This thing that Jesus uh, says to Peter as he's telling Peter that soon Peter will be denying him. He says, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Let's uh, let's have a word of prayer as we turn our minds here. God, we pray that you will take the words that I speak today and by the miraculous power of your spirit, turn them into your words to touch the hearts of your people who have gathered here today, hoping for a word from you. God, we thank you for this way that you work, and we pray that you will help us today not to just be entertained or provoked by human words, but that your word would comfort and challenge and nourish your people. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to start this, again, this passage, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and once you have turned back... Strengthen your brothers. I want to start by just looking at the very last word here, the word brothers. And Jesus doesn't always use the word brothers when he's referring 
to the people who believe in him, the people who follow him. Maybe the most famous time that he does this is when his mother and brothers, his, his biological mother and brothers show up and, and want to see him. And, and Jesus says, who are my mother and, and my brothers? The ones who hear the word of God and do it. These are my mother and my brothers. It's not a word that Jesus uses all the time. Sometimes he does, and I think it's kind of significant he chooses this very weighty word uh, at this moment, this very tender moment between him and Peter. Jesus is reminding Peter at, at this time that he's not just responsible to a random group of 12 adventurers. Uh, He's not just responsible to a random group of guys who Jesus happened to call one day or over the course of a few days and met three years ago and have been traipsing around the countryside together. He's responsible to a family. He's responsible to a brotherhood. What what does this mean that, that Jesus considers his believers to be his brothers and considers that his believers should be brothers and sisters to one another? I think to to answer this, we need to look at at ancient cultures and remember the importance of extended family at the time that that Jesus is talking. Ancient cultures placed a much higher premium on extended family than we do today. Reading the Bible, you get a a sense that a a family at that time shared uh, an inextricably twined destiny. That there was a, a destiny that everyone shared together, which is much uh, truer, I think, than in today's modern Western culture, especially. Uh, I'm glad to have some of my family with me today. Uh, my brother Chris is here. My sister Beth and her husband Aaron are here. And I'm very thankful that they're here. I'm happy that they're here. I love them. But, there's always a but, right? <laughs> Truth be told, though, I don't really think that my, my destiny is bound up with their destiny. Right? That's just not how I think about it. I'm thankful that my siblings and their spouses are doing valuable things with their lives. I'm thankful that things are going well for them, and I support them. I'm genuinely happy for them when it works out, if they get a job they want to. Or, and I'd be genuinely sad for them if one of them lost a job, or if one of their children fell sick, or something like that. And I, I'd be genuinely sad, and I'd be a little ticked off at them if I felt like they were wasting their lives. Or doing something that was going against the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Or doing something frivolous. But, but in this culture, I don't really have a sense that their destiny is bound up with my destiny. That their success is tied with my success. We're a modern, young family. We're expected to find our own homes. Which may or may not be physically near each other. So one of us is here in Houghton, one is in Wisconsin, one is in West Virginia, one is in Maryland. We're expected to do that. We're expected to to blaze our own trails in life. Siblings support us in the journey, but they're not part of the journey itself. Now, ancient cultures perceive this relationship to be a lot tighter. If you you remember, for instance, the story in uh, 2 Samuel about the rape of Tamar, what a terrifying story that is, where Tamar is raped by her half-brother, Amnon. And uh, David is told about, David hears about the story, but David doesn't do anything about it because Amnon is his firstborn son. He has a special tie with Amnon. So he essentially doesn't discipline him at all. It is Tamar's brother, Absalom, who is absolutely consumed with rage at Amnon. Amnon, Absalom cannot sleep until Amnon 
is dead. So he hatches a plan. He has his servants kill Amnon. And when David gets the news about Amnon's death, the messenger says to him, this, that is to say Amnon's death, was determined by Absalom from the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. From the very moment that happened, brother was on the case. And he wasn't going to rest until her violation had been avenged. It was his natural response to avenge the wrong done to his sibling. His destiny is bound up with his sibling's destiny in a way that we modern people just don't quite understand. The Old Testament talks a lot about this, the role of this character called the avenger of blood. A, a person who, if someone is killed, the avenger of blood is authorized and it's sketchy, maybe even expected or compelled to go avenge the death of the person who has died. And the avenger of blood, if there is a brother, the avenger of blood is the brother. And if the person killed didn't have a brother, it could go to an uncle or a cousin or something like that. But the brother was expected to be the avenger of blood. The tight relationship between siblings isn't just true when there was a crime that had been committed, uh, just in the course of everyday life. In a day before uh, there were vast kind of government programs to help the poor, it was siblings who took care of each other economically in life. And that's especially true, I think, of brothers who were almost always the primary breadwinners in that society. Brothers helped each other to thrive and brothers cared for each other when they didn't thrive. Now, I'm making such a point of this just because I think often we allow our modern ideas of what brothers and sisters are to creep into the way we interpret this text. When Jesus calls us brothers, when Jesus calls us siblings, right, our thoughts immediately go to how we understand our brothers and sisters today. As people who are on separate journeys... Not on a journey together. If we're good siblings, we get together often today. We write to each other often. We call each other often. But we're not really expect to share a common destination. Or to think that our success or failure is bound up with our siblings. And I really think this shapes the way we think about the church. The church, so we think, is full of people who are all on our own journeys. And once a week we get together and, and we get strength to go out on our individual journeys. And if we're good Christians, we think maybe we get together more than once a week or we go to Sunday night church or we go to prayer meeting or we go to a small group, but we don't really think of our destiny as being tied up with the destiny of the other people in this room. Your success or failure as a Christian is not necessarily tied to my success or failure, so we think. But I, I think this is what Jesus means exactly when he calls us brothers. He means to say that we're not simply a, a gathering of people on our own unique, disparate journeys. We are instead a family in that, that ancient sense of the word. We're a family in, in that I can only be the kind of Christian I'm called to be if you are the kind of Christian you are called to be. And you can only be the kind of Christian you are called to be if the person sitting next to you and the person three pews over is the kind of Christian they're called to be. The elderly in our church can only be the kinds of Christians they're called to be if the youth in our church are the kinds of Christians they're called to be. And the youth in our church can only be the Christians, vice versa, if the elderly in our church are the kinds of Christians they're called to be. To be a brother or sister in Christ then, then is to confess our weakness. It's to throw ourselves on the church. It's to say, I can't do this on my own. 
I can't reach this destination without your help. And it's also a pledge because it recognizes that there are other people depending on you. Your success or your failure is not yours alone. It impacts everyone around you. So Jesus takes this moment with Peter to remind him that he's not just the the head of this group of guys, but he's part of a family. And his, his spiritual gifts, and Peter's got lots of spiritual gifts, clarity, leadership, speaking. Those gifts give him tremendous potential to help the family. At the same time, the flip side of his gifts are his weaknesses. I often find that's the case. <laughs> the things that we're best at are also the things we're worst at. So Peter's impetuousness, the vicious tongue, the tendency to violence of all sorts. Peter's weaknesses have tremendous potential to devastate the family, to impact the family for evil. Well, it seems like a, uh, a cruel thing to remind Peter of at this moment. And may- maybe it would be cruel of Jesus if it weren't for the statement as a whole. When you have turned back, Peter... Strengthen your brothers. Consider that statement in light of what Peter is about to do. Consider that statement in light of what Jesus knows Peter is about to do. When you have turned back, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Peter's going to leave Jesus to, to die. More alone than he needs to. Uh, Peter is going to heighten Jesus' humiliation because all who see him on the cross will know that even his so-called followers are unwilling to stand with him and stand up for him. Uh, Peter is about to leave his friend alone in the moment of greatest need. Peter will subject him to to greater humiliation. Peter is going to be a bad brother, even by modern standards. And somehow, somehow, in the middle of all this, Jesus tells Peter that his failure can be a source of strength for the family. How? How could that be? I mean, it's a nice sentiment. It goes nice on a greeting card. But but how could it possibly be that his weaknesses could somehow, his failure could somehow be a source of strength for the family. Don't you ever wonder what Peter was like when he saw Jesus raised from the dead? If I were Peter, the guy who turned tail and ran from Jesus in his hour of need, uh, if I were Peter, the resurrection would not be entirely good news, right? If I were Peter and I saw the man who I abandoned walking toward me, I would have been scared. And I I would have done one of two things. Maybe I would have tried to bury my mistake. I would have tried to deny it. Jesus, that didn't happen. (laughs) Jesus, that's just oral tradition. It's not written anywhere. I didn't do it, you know? (laughs) Or maybe, maybe the other thing I would have done would be to try to explain it. Here's why I did this in the heat of the moment. I know she was just a servant girl, but I was really scared. And here are the reasons why it was reasonable for me to be scared, Jesus. Please, 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 please understand. And I would have talked faster and faster just like this, hoping that he would get it. But Jesus, in his mercy, says, before all this has happened, he says, when you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. 
After your repentance, you're still going to have a very important job, Peter. You're still going to have your position of leadership. You're still going to have your high standing among the apostles. You're still going to have the ear of all the people just because you're Peter. You're that kind of guy. I made you that way. You're going to stand up in front of people and people are going to hear from me. That's how I made you. And you are going to have the same impact and same purpose in life, the same impact on the brotherhood and all, all the family. And you need to use this position to strengthen your brothers. And it's so amazing to me how this passage implies that Jesus, or Peter's failure is going to be redeemed. Somehow Peter's failure is going to be folded into his personality, folded into who he is as a person, and that failure will enable him to be a better leader. More adept with his spiritual gifts than he was before. Peter's failure in the miracle of God's economy has made him even a better spiritual leader than he was before the failure. You're going to use this failure, too, to strengthen your brothers. And without failing, you couldn't do it. Intuitively, we know this is true. We know what it's like to meet someone who is almost too perfect... Someone who has never screwed up. Someone who has a great job, a beautiful spouse, teenagers with perfect teeth, a four-year-old who keeps her finger out of her nose, a flashy car, a tastefully decorated home. I have lots of those things. I don't have a four-year-old who keeps her finger out of her nose yet, but (laughs) we'll get there. She is not going to be happy when she's older if she stumbles across this tape. At any rate, we all know perfect people. And how do we feel about perfect people like that? We don't like them. Especially when they publicly pontificate about how people ought to act and live. And Peter was certainly in danger of being that kind of person. If you're Peter and you can get up and you can hold a crowd, you can spin the truth any way you want it to make Peter look awfully good. And so the scriptures go to great lengths to tell us about his failings. The discomfort at accepting Gentile Christians. Cutting off the ear of the soldier in the Garden of Gethsemane. And most notably, this tucking tail and running because he was scared of a servant girl. Nobody could know Peter and think he was perfect because he led with his wounds. His failure was well known, well publicized, and it became part of who he was. And God used this failure to make him a different and better leader than he was before. Why? Because before Peter's failure, he could have told the world how wonderful he was. But when a failure gets up in front of you, all the failure can do is point to God. Peter's failure revealed to everyone that the good news that he proclaimed was not about him, but it was about the grace of God. The grace of God to come to earth. The grace of God to die and rise again. The grace of God to send his Holy Spirit. The grace of God to leave very, very earthen vessels in charge of containing and showing forth his glory. New Year's Day is a holiday I've always been a little uncomfortable with. A significant part of the day is is the practice of New Year's resolutions, of course. The, The idea that it's time to to turn over a new leaf and and take on a new habit or break an old habit. 
Pastor West put in the church newsletter this week about a time to ask ourselves what we want to be, to take steps to get there. I affirm that, by the way. Resolutions are good things. When we, want, when we end up keeping a New Year's resolution, it's a great feeling, right? It can change our lives. But, but unfortunately, as we know, most of our resolutions don't get kept. What do we do when we fail? Well, most often we do one of two things. Those two things that, that I said I would do if I were Peter. One thing we do is to bury our failure. To pretend that we never really resolved anything at all. I could have done it. I just didn't want to. Right? You know, I, I tried to keep my resolution to exercise more. But the second week of January I got sick. And it was just so cold. Right? That's what we do. Either we bury it and pretend we never did it at all. Or we find reasons why failing to do it uh, kept us from doing what we could have done. Either way, what we do is to provide some distance between the failure and ourselves. We are trying to tell others, and frankly, to be honest, we're trying to tell ourselves that what happened is not on us. Either we didn't want to, really, or something kept us from doing it. But if we had just had our way, we would have been successful. Now, here's what we learn from Peter and from many others in the Bible. It's only when we hide our failure, when we bury it, when we run from it, that it has the power to define our existence. Only when we insist our failure is not a part of us does it have any power to harm us. When we, like Peter, are not afraid to let our failures be seen and known... Our failures can actually point the world to a gracious God more fully than if we had never failed at all. Perhaps then our New Year's resolutions shouldn't be ways that we can be more perfect. But a resolve to stop fearing failure. A resolve to, to resist the pressure to deny our sinfulness and to stop wasting so much time and energy polishing our own images to convince ourselves and others that we're perfect. That project hides God from people. It feels noble, it feels virtuous, but people see God less when we do that than when we don't. And it keeps us from experiencing God's love in the way he wants us to experience it. When we're so hung up on telling God, others and ourselves, how perfect we are, we can't know the love of God in the way he wants us to. And that seems to be what what Jesus is saying to Peter here. He says, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Isn't that kind of a weird thing to say? You're going to fail here, Peter. You're going to screw up. And I'm praying, and I would expect him to say, but I'm praying that God is strong enough to overcome your failure. And that this plan can still go forward not what he says. He said, I'm praying for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Peter's failure poses no threat to Jesus. God has a plan in place that can absorb Peter's failures and my failures and your failures. Peter's denial poses much more threat to Peter than it does to Jesus. 
He doesn't pray that God's plan will succeed despite the obstacles that Peter and the others keep putting in the way. He prays that Peter's faith will not fail. It's Peter's faith that's in danger. Again, why does he do this? Again, I I think instinctively we, we know the answers. When we try to distance ourselves from our failures, when we try to bury our failures or run from our failures or rationalize our failures, we never really succeed, do we? I mean, some people, I guess, are so good that they could convince other people that they never fail. But nobody's so good they can convince themselves they haven't failed. Well, maybe some people are, but those are scary people, right? (laughs) Most of us can't ever convince ourselves down deep we haven't screwed up. And down deep, that pains us. Very rarely do we get to the place where we can freely admit our failures, believing they're wrong, but not being afraid to say, I did that. I failed. I blew it. Why is that so hard? Why why is it so difficult for us to strike that right balance where we understand that what we did was wrong, but we're not letting it cripple us emotionally by saying we did it? You know why why I think it's hard? It's because we still like to cling to this tattered myth that we can do this on our own. To say, I did this, I screwed up, it was wrong, is to pitch yourself fully on God's grace. It's to say, I can't do this on my own. To, to admit that sin is in some way likely going to be a part of the rest of your life is to say you stand in constant need of a savior. Right? We, we love this image of sin in our culture, that sin is just sort of a bad choice that we make now and again. But to admit that sin is more than just a few bad choices that otherwise good people make, but to admit that sin is a huge web, embracing individuals, embracing corporate relationships, and to admit that sin is something we can't fully escape from in this earth. To say all of that is to say, I can't on my own. We don't like to say that. Even John Wesley, who had this doctrine of entire sanctification, believed that in terms of the will, that a person could be sanctified to the point where they would consistently choose the right. But Wesley knew as well as the rest of us that we live in a sinful world where we're not always given the option of doing something right and that some way, until God comes again, we're going to be participating in a sinful project. And that's the heart of the matter. We will not easily confess our own sin because deep down, we'd like to believe we can be perfect. We'd like to imagine that success is the the product of our resolutions. And that if we just resolved to do the right things, if we just resolved like Jesus to live as Jesus did and really meant it this time, then we'd be able to do it. And that's just not true. It's a myth. It's a myth that causes us shame if we believe it. It's a myth that keeps us in bondage. It's a myth that makes us feel like failures because every time we failed, 
we feel like it's us. It's our fault every time. And it causes us to believe we're not redeemable because we can't redeem ourselves. But despite that shame, despite the lies and the pain this myth causes, we hang on to it because we want to believe we can do it ourselves. And so many people spend their whole lives in this miserable place, afraid to confess that they failed to live as they ought, unable to let go of this idea they can do it themselves. And that's why Jesus is so concerned for Peter. Failure is no threat to the Almighty. Do you really think God is surprised that you and your spouse fought this morning? Do you think he's sitting around wringing his God hands saying, what am I going to do now? Do you think so? Do you think God is surprised or threatened that you looked at pictures you shouldn't have looked at on the internet or, or ate an entire half gallon of ice cream or, or failed to be generous with a family in need? Is God sitting around saying, what am I going to do? No. He's not surprised. He's not threatened. He's disappointed. His vision for our lives is continually frustrated by our sin. But what's most concerning, I think, at least based on this passage, is the way that our efforts to bury our failures, our efforts to run from our failures, ensure that we keep up the same failures over and over again. Our faith fails like he imagined Peter's might. Our determination to keep our failures private keeps us from a relationship with the body of Christ. God calls us into community and we need each other. But our determination to keep things private keeps us from the nourishment we could receive from each other. It further fractures the body of Christ. And further it ensures we can't be the kind of place that nourishes each other. The more of us who keep it private. It's just like the Garden of Eden. It's, it's not just the fact of the sin itself, but it's the tendency to run and hide, which ensures that sin continues and sin grows. Well, despite my discomfort, there's still something wonderful about New Year's Day. In front of us, there is a vast and unspoiled year, mostly unspoiled. I, uh, I still manage to eat too much on January 1st, so. but it's a mostly unspoiled year. What would it look like if this was the year we learned to acknowledge our failure? What if we said, this is the year I stopped doing violence to myself by burying my failure, by running away from it, by justifying it? But what if I acknowledged it and allowed God to redeem it and to use it to point other people to him? Something amazing might happen. I bet if we stopped doing that kind of violence to ourselves, we'd stop doing it to other people too. Our impatience with ourselves is deeply connected with our impatience with other people. I bet if we acknowledged and owned our failures, we might start being more patient with all the other failures who inhabit our church, our workplace, and everywhere else in our lives. And if we did that, we might be surprised at what the new year holds. Not because we kept our resolutions, but because we didn't. Let's pray. God, we confess the many ways in which we've fallen. We confess that it's hard to confess those things. 
God, give us grace to have such a big vision of you, such a knowledge of your love and your power, that we're not afraid of our failures anymore, that we don't have to bury them, that we don't have to run from them, but we can acknowledge them and allow you to redeem them so that through even our failures, you, good good and gracious God, can point people to yourself for their healing and for ours. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.